Hi, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Before we get going on the podcast this week, there's a couple of quick things I want to talk about. One of my favorite authors, and one of the people that I've probably read almost everything he's ever written, uh, is a guy named John Dominic Crossan. Uh, John Dominic Crossan writes about the historical Jesus. And I found his work to really kind of help me in my own life kind of think through some things and provide some context for not only my spiritual life, but also my personal and professional life. One of the great things about doing this podcast and doing this job is I get to meet a whole lot of people. And I think years ago, I probably would have been embarrassed, too embarrassed or too self-conscious to give uh, Dominic Croson a call. Uh, but I got a hold of him and I asked him, would you be willing to do a podcast? Uh, I would like to talk about community and I would like to talk about how the, uh, the actions of the early Christians and the teachings of Jesus, the person, uh, not Jesus, the, the divine figure or the spiritual figure, but Jesus, the person, his mission, uh, relates to us today in terms of our sense of community. One of the things that I've struggled with personally is just the way in which we interact with each other in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our blocks. And I've grown, uh, you know, partially through this examination of why the finances of our cities don't work. I've grown to kind of look at the traditional development pattern, the way we built places for thousands of years is not only having a certain amount of financial resiliency, but also having a certain amount of social, political, and cultural resiliency as well. That just came from the way that we interact with each other, which you know, when you live in a society of people who walk, people who would run into other humans on a day-to-day -day basis, much, much different than the kind of artificial realm we've created today. I don't know if we got to that in this interview. <laughs> and it, it was a delight to me to speak with John Dominic Croson because he is one of the people uh, whose writings I admire the most. And, and it was really a trip uh, to get to chat with him. So I, I think we get there. Uh, we certainly uh, talk about a lot of very interesting things. And even if you're not a Christian and even if you're not a, a deeply theological or spiritual person, I hope you find a lot that you can take away from this conversation that helps advance the message of strong towns, particularly when we get to uh, that whole conversation about how we treat each other, how we interact with each other, and uh, and the society that we all have chosen to live in. So with that, I'm going to get to the podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week, I have a really special guest, John Dominic Crossan is a New Testament scholar. He's a historian of early Christianity, a former Catholic priest, and a prolific author. We're going to talk about two of his books today, The Power of Parable and The Greatest Prayer. John Dominic Croson, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Pleasure to be with you, Chuck. To start off here, could you just explain 
what study of the historical Jesus is, early Christianity, and, and how that differs from theology. All right. We started off with the, with the hardest one. <laughs> Basically, the study of the historical Jesus is the way a historian would look at any other figure in history, past or present. It does not presume against the person or for the person. The best model I would have is a journalist who is put on a presidential plane to report on the candidate. And let us say if the candidate happens to be a Republican and the journalist happens to be a Democrat, he is still supposed to have the integrity to do a good job, to report exactly what's going on as best he can. The back of his mind, he may well be thinking, I don't believe a word of this or, <laughs> sure. or whatever. But that's his business. If he wants to be a journalist, he has to be able to report accurately. And it doesn't make any difference what the person is saying. Now, if the person is making claims about the future of the country and everything, it's pretty hard for anyone to be a journalist and say, well, you know, I'm just listening to him. I'm, I'm neutral. I, whatever. This is the tricky part. You cannot do good history, good history on Jesus without recognizing, admitting, <laughs> stating that he's making claims about human nature and life and the destiny of our species. He's not just talking about better ways to improve the agricultural yield of Lower Galilee. <laughs> he is really making claims. He's talking about, quote, the kingdom of God. Sometimes some of my colleagues, I think, are good historians, but are a little bit embarrassed by the fact that their subject is actually a theologian. <laughs> sure, sure. Maybe they're not, but you can't be stone deaf to religion or tone deaf to theology and handle Jesus or Paul. You just can't do it. If I thought medicine was silly, I could probably not write about Hippocrates. Right. You have to be able to have some... I don't know, not necessarily agreement, but some integrity with handling your subject. So the old chestnut of you know the Jesus of history versus the Christ of faith had some validity when it started, because it was necessary to make it quite clear that faith cannot make historical judgments. You can make a faith judgment is about the meaning of history, not the facts of history. Let's say Pilate had complete dossier on Jesus. I'm making this up, of course. Right, right. He had video and everything on his desk, and he knew everything Jesus ever said and did. He would probably have crucified him even faster. So the historian can do what the historian must do. And then it's pretty hard if you're dealing with somebody, as I said, who's making a claim, not to say, well, I don't think I agree with that, or I think too much for me, which might be the honest thing. I think he's right, but I can't handle it. It's very, very delicate interface. And my way of handling it is you're trying to reconstruct the facts as best you can. Then theology has to do with the meaning. What kind of things do you do to reconstruct the facts? What is the approach that a scholar such as yourself takes to try to discern essentially the context uh, around the things that Jesus said and did. My own methodological discipline, as it were, it's actually impossible to do, but try and imagine it. I try and create as thick a matrix as I can of the first century world, the Jewish homeland, 
Galilee, <laughs> the Lake of Tiberias. I'm kind of fine focusing down, down, right, down. Right. The 20s under Antipas. As if I could do this, I, it's not possible, but let me imagine Jesus never existed. Of course, I wouldn't be doing this, <laughs> but <laughs> right. let's imagine it. How thick a description can I put of life on the lake in the 20s under Herod Antipas? Forget Jesus, forget John the Baptist. If I was just even, you know, writing the background for a movie or something, and you had to tell all of these questions. So before I introduce the main character, as it were, I try to have as thick a matrix as I can of everything I know from the first century. And then my discernment is when I look at the rather multiple Jesuses, <laughs> Jesuses right. in the Testament, which is rather obvious. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to begin with, and that's three too many, as it were. <laughs> I will decide which of those fits most accurately into that first century matrix. If I begin to get stuff that sounds to me like, well, that fits into the 90s of the first century, or not the 20s, and begin to say, okay, that probably is the community talking about Jesus, maybe putting new materials on his lips. That's my discriminant. You cannot begin, as far as I can see, by simply taking the Gospels and starting right in, because the warning, which I must respect whether I like it or not, is that I have four versions. And they say that quite honestly. They say the Gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They don't say the Gospel of. There's really only one Gospel. There's only one Jesus but we're getting different vectors on him. And I don't see anything wrong in that. They're quite open and honest. They don't say, now, this is history. Right. They say, this is gospel. If you want to ask, what was the gospel of the 20s like? What would somebody who was there with Jesus have said the good news is? And that's really the historical question. Well, what would have, uh, when you're creating that backdrop that you can then put the Gospels as they're written into, what would life have been like for a typical Jew in the 20s, you know, AD? What would life have been like that Jesus, you know, would have emerged into? You know, in the last decades, it's been almost a truism to say Jesus was a Jew. Of course. Absolutely, and without a doubt, he was not Irish. He was Jewish. <laughs> right. He could, could be Irish and Jewish at the same time, but he was <laughs> Jewish in the Jewish homeland. Yes. Now, having said that, you are absolutely accurate and totally inadequate. Josephus was a Jew in the Jewish homeland, and he said quite openly, and he believed it quite sincerely, that God had given power to the Roman Empire, and nobody should ever resist the Roman Empire or they were resisting God. That is a Jewish opinion. So the next thing you have to say is, of course he was a Jew. How did he fit into his tradition? What was going on? Where was he on the crucial questions of the first century? And I would say the most crucial question of the first century for anyone in the Jewish homeland, who if I may be blunt, wasn't an idiot, what do we do with the Roman Empire? Should we just settle down quietly and obey it? Should we go off into the desert and get as far away from it as we can? Should we start revolt against it like Joshua did in the name of God? Do we use nonviolent resistance against it? Do we remain absolutely faithful to our own tradition in its faith? All of those were viable options in the first century because Josephus describes them all. 
Sure. A lot of them he doesn't like, but he still describes them. Why would that have been an issue? I mean, you had the whole Pax Romana, right? It was a, a beautiful time to be alive. You had Rome had created peace across the land. What would have been the tension if you were a peasant from Nazareth? For some people, by the way, the Pax Romana would have been called the Pax Romana. <laughs> sure. I can mutilate the Latin. Let me be very concrete. In the 20s, Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great, and whose lifelong ambition wanted to be, like his father, king of the Jews, which he could only do if the Romans, of course, gave him that title. They controlled it. Decided to move his capital from Sepphoris to Tiberias. Obviously, he's playing to the new emperor. To commercialize the lake. As far as you can figure out, why would anyone change their capital city? That Your capital city is a kind of sacred place that so you don't go moving them around, but you infuriate everyone. He's over there to commercialize the lake. Now, in the 20s, as he's commercializing the lake, which doesn't mean he's impoverishing Galilee. He's trying to up his tax base right? to look good to the Romans who will make him king of the Jews. But that's going to change the economy of the whole area. People could have gone down to the lake and launched the boat and maybe catch some fish to support them, their family now probably have to pay taxes and everything and probably sell the fish to his fish factories. And so when Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of God, it's not kind of just airy nothing about a world of justice and peace and wouldn't it all be lovely. He's looking very specifically at this situation and the kingdom of God then is like a laser beam (laughs) pointing not a general inequality or imperial power or anything nice and vague and up in the air. But to put it, if I could, Please. rather bluntly, this sucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not right. Where's the justice of God when something we were able to do for all tradition, go down to the lake and cast in a net and get some extra fish, extra protein? Who, who decides we can't do What's all this stuff we hear in the Psalms about the world belongs to God and to whom does the lake belong? Right. <laughs> so right. it's a terribly localized, if all politics is very local, the kingdom of God gets very local at this stage. <laughs> so you almost have to focus on that to understand what John the Baptist is about, what Jesus is about, because it's what Antipas is about that is the spark that I think fires both the baptism movement of John and the kingdom movement of Jesus. How does that then manifest in Jesus's ministry? He uh, obviously learned under John the Baptist and then set out on his own. How did his ministry in a broad sense reflect those conditions of the time? Again, if I go back to the matrix for a moment, we have the evidence, now this is across the whole country, not just Galilee, that Obviously, in the first 200 years of Roman occupation, everyone knows there was four violent armed rebellions, huge large-scale rebellions, three of them in the homeland, one across North Africa, which made the Romans send their best generals and, and three or four or five or six legions to suppress them. Everyone knows about the one of 66 to 74 when the temple was destroyed and Masada fell. But what doesn't get mentioned and I think it's equally important, is that there was at least five, six organized, nonviolent acts of resistance backed up by willingness for martyrdom if necessary. Mm -hmm. 
And we have those in Josephus. He, he thinks, of course, this is terrible, it's awful, and he's no sympathy for it whatsoever, which is fine, that's fine. So he's not making it up because he doesn't like it. So violent resistance, nonviolent resistance, both probably in the name of God, were options in the Jewish homeland. That's the general matrix in which I'm looking at the protest movements of John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, if I can compare them really fast, John's message is basically that the kingdom of God is imminent, it's coming soon. The only thing that's holding it up is our sins. So what we're going to do is a sort of reenact a new exodus. Yes. <laughs> we will go into the desert east of the Jordan. We'll come through the waters of the Jordan, and as they wash our bodies, repentance will wash our souls. That's what the baptism is about. It, it helps if you really forget the word, because it, it confuses us from Christianity. Sure. He's imagining reenacting the exodus like a huge, big sacramental reenactment. Then when we come into the promised land, we are a purified people, and then, of course, that's all that's holding up God, so then we come the kingdom of God. And if you said to him, well, now, what exactly is it going to be like? That's when everything gets very vague. It's, it's quite clear from the tradition that there'll be no more violence, no more war, no more oppression. There'll be peace, there'll be justice. And I suppose in flights of fancy, um, you get the, <laughs> you won't even have to make wine anymore. There'll be bottles growing <laughs> under sure. the vines, as it were. It goes off into fantasy, but it usually starts off very clear. A just world, a fair share of God's stuff for everyone. No war, no violence, no oppression. I suppose if you said to John, you know, tell me more, it's like he's marching around singing, we shall overcome. Yeah. And you don't ask people singing, we shall overcome. Now, how exactly will it happen? <laughs> What's the next step here? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Tell me the next step. So John's vision is, I think, quite clear, as long as you don't confuse it with, that of course, he's going to be made up as a preparation, uh, the preparer for Jesus. He's preparing for God. John's mission was operational before Jesus ever arrived. So you can't just simply say, well, he's preparing for Jesus. He's preparing for the kingdom of God. I think what happened to Jesus, and this is where the historical question is raised, I'm convinced as a historian that Jesus was baptized by John, which is another way of saying that he accepted John's vision and program. Otherwise, he shouldn't have been doing that. Right. You know, he was doing exactly what John was saying. But then... When I hear Jesus speaking with his own voice, as it were, he says things which I think are also historical, that the greatest person ever born is John the Baptist, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater. That sounds very much to me like exactly how you handle a revered mentor you no longer agree with. Yes. I think what has happened is that Jesus watched. Yeah, I really think he did. What happened to John? I mean, John said God was coming any day to restore a just world. Well, what actually happened was Antipas's cavalry arrived, executed John, and God did nothing. Now, Jesus has kind of two options at that point, I suppose. One is to postpone the date. <laughs> we know that works quite well for 2,000 years. John just got the date wrong. It's going to be next month or the month after, or more people have to go through the baptism process, whatever. But... Of course, the objection anyone would say, well, if God is really coming and going to do all of this, surely God could 
take care of it, arrive in time to save John? What kind of a God are we dealing with? Can we even trust this God? So I think, I'm talking now as a historian, I have no other way of explaining those two sides of Jesus, as it were, for John, and then respectfully different from John. You never get him attacking John, ever, ever, ever. You never get him agreeing with him either after that baptism. So I think what it did for Jesus was change his vision of the kingdom of God and even of the God of that kingdom. As I see the message that you start getting from Jesus when he's talking in his own voice, is not that the kingdom is going to come any day with a great act of divine intervention and we should be ready for it and prepare for it, but of course we're not participants. I think the message you get from Jesus is what I've called a <laughs> collaborative eschatology, that the kingdom is not coming by intervention. It's only coming by collaboration. Put more bluntly, you're waiting for God and God's waiting for you. No, nothing's ever going to happen. <laughs> right. It, it's terribly traditional Jewish because they always talked about covenant. And a covenant is a bilateral contract, as you know. Covenant needs participants. So the, the whole covenantal faith of Israel was never that God was going to do the whole thing for you. That all you had to do was be good and be ready. The presumption always was in covenant that you get with the program. <laughs> you can't do it without God, and God won't do it without you. I never understood that until I read your description of the temple sacrifice. Because in a 2013 eyes, this seems like a backward barbaric practice. You yes. take an animal, you kill it, you offer it to God. But it was actually a communal meal with God. That was how it was seen. Is that right? Yes. I mean, basically, whenever, even today, but certainly in the ancient world, whenever you wanted to have a feast, especially if, you know, I had a big row with you and I'm inviting you over for reconciliation, I'm certainly not going to serve you a pit of bread and hummus. Right, know? right. That goes to an insult. There's going to be an animal killed. I mean, the fatted calf is going to be killed when the prodigal son comes home. Mm -hmm. And nobody's going to discuss how the fatted calf feels about that. <laughs> but they would have understood in the ancient world that when you said no reconciliation without the shedding of blood, that was like, duh. Right. You can't have a reconciliation meal unless you have... <laughs> Meat. Right. So the same way they're thinking, all right, now how do I have a feast with my God? Maybe God is angry with me and I need to have a, a reconciliation meal, or maybe God is angry with me or ignoring me, or I need something and I want to give a gift. So the Holocaust was simply the gift that was given totally to God. You took something that was precious, a sheep, let's say, which was very precious, and you holocausted it, which meant you burned it completely. You got nothing, and it went up to God, as it were, with the smoke, symbolically. Mm. It was like a gift. And you can see that in the very name. Sacrifice comes from the Latin sacrum facere, to make sacred. What you've just done is made your lamb sacred by giving it to God. The gift and the meal are the basis of sacrifice. I think anyone today who eats meat should recognize that the logic is, if you invite a friend to a meal and you happen to get the meat saran wrapped in the grocery store, that's only covering up the fact that somewhere an animal was killed right. for your dinner. I understand, you know, if, if 
for ethical reasons, somebody is a vegan, that's one thing. But to be shocked at sacrifice is rather naive. The entire ancient world took it absolutely for granted. How else would you give a gift to your God or have a meal with your God? Let me ask you about the book, The Power Parable, the latest book that you released. It's a general audience book. It's not a scholarly work. It's a for the average reader. Jesus is famous for teaching in parables. Why did he use parables? Why is it such an important device for him? Think what it is first. Forget Jesus for a moment. Think of a metaphor. You know, a metaphor is, is, is rather simple. I'm looking out my window right now in Florida, and I could say the clouds are sailing across the sky. That's a metaphor. Clouds don't sail. I don't know. <laughs> but they do rather look, the sky is blue and looks like the sea, and the clouds are white and they look like sails of a ship. So, you know, sailing across the sky, we understand as a metaphor, and we'd usually be annoyed if somebody said, clouds don't sail, we'd say, oh, get over it. So we understand you're seeing one thing, moving clouds, as if they were something else. All right. If you take a metaphor and broaden it into a story, you get what's called a parable. And again, the point is that you seem to be talking about something, but you're asking the person to think about something else. Example, Jesus tells the story of the sower. The one thing you're certain of, if you're intelligent, is that he ain't talking about salt. <laughs> right. He's not talking about planting seeds. <laughs> you go home and tell your wife, oh, I learned all about sowing this morning. She's going to tell you you're an idiot. But then what is he talking about? I know he's not talking about sowing. In a parable, the one thing you do know is that it isn't about what the person seems to be talking about. Right. So what is happening is a parable is an intensely interactive means of communication. It forces you to think. It says something quite clearly. You're certain it's not about sowing, but what's it about? So the only reason that people would talk in parables is to trust their audience, to provoke their audience even, to lure their audience into thinking for themselves. I kind of don't think you can parable yourself, if you know what I mean. It's like Totally. It's like telling yourself a joke. Well, you probably won't burst out laughing. Maybe you might if you're telling it to other people. But So when Jesus tells, for example, a parable, let's say, about uh, the people who are given a lot of money, a little money, and they both go out and get a lot of money from it, and the other one hides it in the ground. And at the end of it, the, the master, of course, is annoyed. Now, let's imagine Jesus has just told that, and I... You know, if you read it in the New Testament, it would take a minute to read it. And, of course, you have to give Jesus maybe an hour to tell it and mind it out and act it out and everything else, or otherwise the audience would could cough and lose the whole thing. So Jesus tells this story. And I'm presuming, of course, interruptions. He could get objections before he gets going. Yeah. But when it's finished, you got a story about three people who got some money. Two of them doubled it, more or less. The third one hid it and brought it back. Two of them got interest. No other way you get it that fast. Yeah. The third one didn't. Now, according to the Roman system and the Wall Street system, the third guy is the loser. <laughs> He's right. punished for, you know, whatever. 
But according to the Jewish system, you're not supposed to take interest on your fellows if they need it. And in fact, this is the only time I think in the New Testament that the word for interest is ever used. Any Every other time it's used in the Bible, it's always bad. It's something you don't do with your fellows. So if you imagine the audience, if it works, mm-hmm. I mean, trusting his audience, if everyone in the audience says, oh, that guy was an idiot, he should be punished, he didn't do it, then <laughs> move on, Jesus. <laughs> right. Not working. Try right. some other group or another story. Yeah, these guys aren't getting it. Yeah, they're not getting it. But if somebody says, well, we're not supposed to do that according to Torah. Yeah, but all the Romans are doing it. Yeah, but we're not supposed to do it. Now you're starting an argument. Yeah. The parable is working. And so when people say, what does the parable mean as if there was some secret in there, like like in a riddle or something, and there's, there's one answer and if you could only get it. What the parable means, it means to provoke discussion. It means to make you think. And the reason Jesus uses parables comes inextricably from his vision of the kingdom, because if we're right that Jesus is saying the kingdom is here, but only insofar as you participate in it, enter into it, take it upon yourselves, then everything depends on them. There's no use in Jesus talking about the kingdom if they're not getting it and getting with it. It's not happening. It's it's not like like the kingdom is there, but just nobody's paying any attention to it. Yeah, it's, it's only it, there insofar as they react and enter it. So one way of luring them in as participants, collaborators, covenantal interaction, as it were, <laughs> is parable. It seems to me to be the perfect interactive method if you're trying to get people to participate in something. Let's use that thought to talk about the Good Samaritan. For me, growing up, the Good Samaritan was, you know, a story of helping people. You, you, Someone was on flat tire on the side of the road, and if you were a Good Samaritan, you'd stop and help them fix their flat. That's not necessarily the way that people in the first century would have heard that, though, is it? It's not, but it is probably the way Luke <laughs> sure. tells it. And of course, when we use the term Good Samaritan, you know, that famous uh, Seinfeld incident where they don't help somebody, it is really, <laughs> I think that it would come down pretty much to if you see somebody in the ditch, should you help? And of course, our, our humanity says, of course, and did we really need Jesus to teach us that? But the trouble is that Good Samaritan is for us a kind of a cliche. And in the first century, it was a bit more of a oxymoron. (laughs) It would have been like good Al-Qaeda today, right? It would be a good Al-Qaeda, a good terrorist for us. And even if we had a story like that, you know, would you put it on television in the evening? What kind of a statement are you making? They're all good. So the story, as you read it, you have to imagine almost Jesus in a situation like Jerusalem itself telling the story. He simply says a man's going down. He doesn't say it's a Jew. We're all Jews here, so we take it for granted that somebody going down from Jerusalem to Jericho is a Jew. And then he has the two revered leaders of their people, the priests and Levites. And these are not bad guys. If these are bad guys, then there's, 
the story loses its point because, well, bad guys do what bad guys do and you, you shouldn't do what they do. Right. So what he does is set up a kind of a tension between who are your ideal people in, in your view, and it might not be for us, but say the priests and the Levites, they walk past and it's the, everyone now is waiting for the third one because this is classical storytelling. It's the third one that works. It's the third try that's going to be success. Everyone knows that. Watch the third one. And they might well be waiting. Oh, I know what it is. It's going to be a Jewish lay person. <laughs> the priest passes by the Levites, but the lay person, like us. Right. Guys. And then he zaps them with it, the Samaritan. So now you're kind of caught. On the one hand, sure, if you find somebody in the ditch, especially if it was you, <laughs> you'd want to be helped. But a Samaritan, what that does is really make the audience probably a little bit infuriated. If you just wanted to tell us that you should always help somebody in distress, or even if you wanted to tell us, Jesus, that we should help our enemy if we see him in the ditch, put the Samaritan in the ditch. <laughs> then we can feel very pleased with ourselves. But yes, of course we would. If we find the Samaritan in the ditch, we probably would help him. But in the stories that we have in the first century, there's one, for example, I think, in Josephus about pilgrims going to Jerusalem, and instead of coming down to Transjordan, they come down to Samaria, and I think one of them was killed, as far as I remember, and there's riots, there's huge riots that bring in the Romans, and a lot of people are dead when it's over. Wow. So th there's an ethnic tension mm -hmm. between Jews and Samaritans, in a certain sense, maybe worse than between Jews and Romans, because ethnic tensions, as you know, among those living closest to you, mm -hmm. are very often the worst ones. Irrational and deep, yeah. As we know in so many places in the world. So Jesus has told an extremely provocative story. I don't think that Luke actually sees how provocative it is, because by that time, Samaritan is something you look up in the dictionary, and priests, some you look up, or a Levite, you know, Jerusalem, Jericho, you, you, you have to look up the story. Right, it's right. Like having a, it's like having a joke explained to you. I get it, but I'm not laughing. Right. What Jesus would have expected to do with this is to make people think, okay, I've just seen this story. He, he told us everything he did. He did everything except give him the donkey. Now, what do I think? Okay, okay, Jesus, there's one good Samaritan. You managed to find one good one. Um, the one good apple, as it were. Are, do I think there's lots like that? Are they claiming that all Samaritans are good? And all our religious leaders are bad? What's he saying? You know, I don't know what he's saying, but I don't like it. Yeah. So I think it would raise issues about how secure are you about all the good guys are this and all the bad guys are that. It shakes your foundations a little bit. <laughs> it, it is actually, you know, what Socrates did by asking questions. Right. Jesus does by telling parables. Both of them make you look very closely at what you take absolutely for granted growing up. This is our culture. We're Jews. Those are Samaritans. Or we're Samaritans. Those are Jews. We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. And life is simple. It makes you think a little bit about it. And those are the things, of course, that many culture 
get the guardians of the culture very excited. So in one sense, Jesus is going to end up as dead as Socrates. Right. I'd like to ask you about the feeding of the crowd in Mark. This is another one where I grew up with this as a miracle story. Jesus, divine person, has the power to create food. There's hungry people. He creates food. It always bothered me that, well, then why didn't, you know, (laughs) why is anybody hungry? (laughs) You talk about this in maybe a little bit different way than just a miracle, uh, but as something more applicable to us and how we approach one another. Would you care to explain that a little bit? Yeah, and let me overture a bit about miracles. In the ancient world, Jews, Romans, everyone believed that certainly extraordinary events were manifestations of divine power or interventions. And I don't think it is valid for us to say, well, we really think the Christian ones happened, but the Jewish and the Roman ones, yeah, we don't believe them. They just made them up. <laughs> right. You really either have to take them all <laughs> or take none of them. But in any case, what you should ask is, if these people believed that extraordinary things could happen, then why did they choose these ones rather than that? For example, I think Mark probably believed, I would think, that Jesus could pretty much do whatever he wanted to. And he did. I think he really believed that. I think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all believed that. Right. So the fact that there's certain things he never does becomes important. He, he never uses his power to knock down an opponent. He can argue with a Pharisee, for example, and of course he always gets the last word because it's his story, but he never raises the Pharisee 50 feet in the air and asks him, would you like to continue this before I drop you in your head? It's important what he doesn't do. And then, again, it's important what he does do. Now, as Mark tells this story, it is a miracle, not the slightest doubt about it. I would say it's a miracle in a parable. Because of all the things that Mark thinks Jesus could do, he tells this one. And then what I say, to understand it, read the story. Read the whole story from beginning to end. And it cries out to me, I'm a parable dummy. Right. First of all, nobody's starving. It's not a story of, you know, helping the starving people. They've just spent the whole day with Jesus. And the disciples are all in favor of this. There's no problem. They don't see anything until it's evening time and people are thinking of eating. And then what Mark sets up is a clash between two visions of how to do things in a cubit simple. The disciples say, send them away. It's the biblical basis for the fast food industry. Just send them away somewhere where they can get some food for themselves, 5,000 sure. people. Send them away. Then Jesus counters with what sounds absolutely absurd, and they almost laugh in his face. You give them to eat. You give them to eat. Mm-hmm. And of course, they laugh at them. <laughs> How could we do that? Then what happens in the story is that they are pulled out of their solution and forced to cooperate with Jesus in his. Because each step of the way after that, they're in the middle. And, and normally when Jesus performs a miracle, they're just standing there going, wow. You know, He doesn't say, you do this, you do that. He tells them, to go see how much food is available, the loaves and the fishes. Then he tells them, have the people sit down. Then the four key words he took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. Those are the Eucharistic words. And when they come through his hands, 
He gives them to the disciples to give to the crowd. And then, of course, as you know, the disciples have to do the cleanup. Right. So as I read that, I get two messages. One is that the disciples are all in favor of this teaching business that's been doing all day. But they're not into eating. <laughs> and Jesus is going to force them to do it. It's not necessary. I suspect if you ask somebody, this is an interesting test, write me out the story of the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, or better, I would say, the distribution of the loaves and fishes. I bet they wouldn't keep saying, and Jesus said to the disciples to do it, and Jesus had the disciples do it. I mean, it's kind of awkward right. with yourself. I mean, even John's Gospel is a bit embarrassed by Jesus having to ask them, you know, go see what food is available, John says. He knew it. He just did that to test them. Sure. Yeah, of course. So the other thing I find there is that Mark, of course, believes that Jesus could turn the stones into bread or bring manna down from heaven or do whatever he wanted. But it's the food that is actually there, which, when it passes through the hands of Jesus, is prodigiously more than enough for everyone. So I read that from Mark as a parable, that the food that is in the world is already adequate for everyone in the world if it is distributed to the hands of divine justice. And I think Mark is criticizing the apostles, the disciples, for not getting with the program. And it's not about charity. And it's not about hospitality. And it really is not about potluck either. It really is about who owns the stuff in the world and particularly the material basis of life on which everything else depends, food. So you get a lot of stuff in the gospel about eating. It is not, I would repeat again, anything to do with hospitality or charity. It's a statement about everyone having a right, minimally, and it is minimally, to a fair share of food. And then, of course, also since Jesus is teaching and healing, everyone has a right to an open sharing of health and education, shall we say. When you wrote the book, The Greatest Prayer, which is uh, the subtitles, Rediscovering the Revolutionary Message of the Lord's Prayer, you went through each line of this famous prayer and put it in its context. I want to talk about the one line, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You describe this as a present and collaborative state, something that we're not simply sitting around waiting to happen. This is kind of the John, Jesus, different take on our collaboration with God. Can you elaborate on that a little bit and how the early Christians would have interpreted that as a way for them to live their lives? Okay, exactly. And one of the things I said in that book, too, is that I'm a little bit surprised because we say in English, on earth as it is in heaven, we say earth first. And I'm always suspicious that people really think that means on earth we do this and then eventually we go to heaven. That's actually how I grew up thinking it was. It's the natural thing because that's the way it says it. Will of God on earth, heaven. Whereas in Greek, it's as in heaven, so on earth. And that's very much the way the people were thinking about the kingdom of God in first century Israel. If, if you go back, say, for example, to the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel, 
where there is this condemnation of imperialism, the Babylonian, Median, Persian, Alexandrian, that's the one from Macedonia, the Greeks, are all condemned, and instead the kingdom of heaven is sort of prepared up in heaven. You're almost imagining, at least this way, I'm imagining it, as if God is the architect, and you have up in heaven in the architect's office, you have a model of the ideal world. Sure. And if you get a voyage up to heaven like Paul does and other mystics do, you can actually see the new <laughs> the new earth as it were all laid out there like in an architect's office. Here's the plan. So it's, that, yeah. it's the plan. Yeah. The plan, the diagram, exactly. You can visualize it. So as in heaven, so on earth means that, that it's, it's set up in heaven to descend to earth. The direction is terribly important. You even get that at the very end of the apocalypse in John of Patmos. It's not that we're going, we're leaving earth to go off to heaven. It's that the model from heaven, or the will of God is another way of saying the model from heaven, is coming down here upon earth. So the entire thrust from Torah through prophecy through Jesus into Paul is about God's transformation of the world. And as you, you get it, it's not going to be done by God, as if we just wait and it's going to be done. It'll never be done by God. And in the meanwhile, of course, the danger is that what we are doing is in creating more and more, inevitably, a world we cannot live in. The challenge at the core of the Our Father, and the challenge of Jesus, so there's no surprise there, the best way it's ever been summed up was Archbishop Desmond Tutu in a sermon at All Saints in Pasadena in 1999 said, God without you won't, you without God can't. And I think that is exactly right. And it's not just, well, you know, we should always remember to mention God. It's like the end of a presidential inaugural address. Don't forget to mention God. I think we have enough experience now in the last, say, 10,000 years of human history that we need some transcendental leverage <laughs> to get this world a just place. Not because we're evil. I don't think that's it at all. But it seems that the drag of normalcy pulls us towards injustice and justifies violence and war. And even, you know, when you have to argue that, well, what else could we do? We had to do this we end up then facing a world in which we have never invented a weapon we didn't use. I suppose you could argue we never used the hydrogen bomb yet, but uh, but in general, <laughs> our right. weapons get better and better at destruction, and we usually use them. So I think the transformation of the world to a place of justice is on a race with the escalation of violence. And it's like... <laughs> a huge evolutionary experiment or a divine wager. If there is a species who are free and not controlled by instinct, absolutely controlled by instinct, what will they do with their freedom? Could they destroy their environment and themselves or, or what? For modern day Christians, for people listening to this podcast that want to follow the teachings of Jesus how do these stories, you know, the Good Samaritan, the feeding of the crowd, the call to active participation that we find in the Lord's Prayer, how should that impact 
our day-to-day lives, the way we live in our neighborhoods and our communities and interact with our just fellow human beings? I think it would be very good if we could get over this idea that God's going to intervene, especially the idea that somehow God is punishing us. There are human consequences for what we do. We don't get away with certain things. But to introduce a punishing God into it, or a God who somehow will let us off with stuff, I think that is profoundly naive and terribly unbiblical. <laughs> they were trying, I mean, if you imagine tiny Israel in the most dangerous part of the, the world then and now, and the Levantine coast between the two great imperial powers of whoever run, whoever controlled Mesopotamia, or whoever controlled Egypt. They're trying to explain why, they, why there's invasions, why there's a drought. And unfortunately, in what I would consider very bad theology, they concluded, well, God must be punishing us. We saw that with John. God must be punishing us. That's where we had a drought. That's where we had an invasion. And that's a kind of a crime against humanity and divinity to tell people who are going to be invaded no matter what they do because of where they're living, that you're being punished by God, that God sent the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans or the Macedonians or whoever comes next. So somehow we have to take responsibility. And I really do mean it in collaboration with, <laughs> with the holy. We have to do it that way because I don't see any other way of getting what I call transcendental leverage on our world. It's, I mean, we're inside it. We, we are inside civilization. How do we get outside it to criticize it? We have always used violence as kind of always our humanity's drug of choice. So how do we get a 12-step program? Right to get rid of violence and to get to think of violence the way we think of slavery as something that used to be natural, according for Aristotle. And we've done the same with violence, that it's just, you know, it's part of life, just get over it, it's like bad weather. But the trouble is that it escalates and has been escalating exponentially. So what I would think is cooperation, covenant, with God, and I do not necessarily presume when I say God, I'm talking about a person. I could be talking about a process. I don't presume that at all. But I am talking about something that seems better than our best. Right. Not worse than our worst, and that we need to get leverage on our worst. And stop thinking that it's going to be an intervention, or at the last minute somebody would pull us back from the fire or the tip of the volcano or that we're being punished, there are human consequences for what we do. They're not, I think, divine punishments. They're human consequences. I want to ask you something that is probably going to be outside of, it certainly is outside of what your common area of expertise is. I know you've traveled the world, and I know you've seen a lot of different places. At Strong Towns, we focus a lot on the built environment, the places that we live Things like how our streets are laid out and our roads are laid out and how we build our homes and how we uh, build our shopping areas and, you know, that kind of stuff. Do you have any thoughts? Uh, You live in Florida. Florida is 
a very prime example of kind of the post-World War II dispersed development pattern that is very unique to the United States. Do you have any thoughts or insights or opinions on how the way we live here in America maybe makes it easier or harder to be a Christian and follow those teachings of Jesus? I think what I've been seeing, and I sometimes wonder I'm just getting old, (laughs) it it seems to be narcissistic individualism seems to be becoming fostered more and more. To be honest with you, I'm thinking of Facebook more than thinking of... Sure, sure. Um, It does make us absolutely discreet from one another in, in every way, shape, or form. I notice it when I go back to Ireland or to anywhere where people are still, let me put it bluntly, able to look you in the face and smile. I'm talking personally now. Absolutely. In a shop or something like that. I'm not talking about friends or they're meeting you. To be able to say, please, thank you, um, excuse me. To be able to, to use your turning signals and the presumption that there might be other people on the road beside you. <laughs> I do think that everything we're doing seems to make us more and more discreet, that's the I-S-C-O-E-T-E, separate, isolatable for commerce, as it were. Right. And some of that is, you know, is, is absolute life. And as I say, I don't want to end up whining my way into old age that things are different because I'm perfectly happy with technology and everything else. But I don't want it to be used, you know, so that the ideal dinner table will have five iPads. Right. <laughs> I right. mean, at least if you had dinner and the family looked at television, they were all looking at the same thing and couldn't talk about it. <laughs> but somehow it is strange how the technology seems to be pushing us. I think I understand the logic of it because if I'm trying to sell you something, I can't sell to a family. You have to sell either to the father or the mother or whoever, the buyer or whoever. But anything that would pull us back towards a sense of community, we have, and it's the power of our of our own culture, individualism, and that's a, that's a huge value, the value of the individual. But an individual without a community is actually not viable. Can't even use language without having grown up in a community. So somehow I see other cultures where I think the community is overdone almost. Sure. (laughs) And you want to get away from it screaming. (laughs) But somehow the dialectic between community and individual may have been lost more and more in, in our culture in favor of the individual. If I'm right, the reason for that is because if I'm trying to sell, I want you isolatable. <laughs> right. It's very hard to sell to a community. I mean, it's much easier if I can find out who in the family likes sugar <laughs> and sell <laughs> directly to that person. You know, you began this by talking about the shores of the lake and the commercialization of the area where Jesus was growing up. Do you see parallels here in the tension that we feel today in the United States and some of those things? I hadn't heard you talk about that before, and I just found that very fascinating. 
But Antipas is after it's become, the logic of his life is clear. He wants to become king of the Jews. And right. We be very careful about rulers who want to be as good as their father, by the way. <laughs> sometimes it works. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. And I would imagine, yes. I mean, he's certainly not trying to impoverish Galilee. That's not going to work for him at all. That's not what he wants to do. But the rights of individuals that they would have felt that the tradition was that the lake is open. I mean, okay, the land belongs to this person or that person, and we know that, and you have your own piece of land. But the lake is like the commons. Sure. Who owns the lake? It's water. I mean, if you have a boat, you can go out in it. Who's to stop you? So in one sense, there is a balance between community and individual there. It takes four of us to buy a boat, and I suspect that's... Some of the people in the New Testament, that's, by the way, why there's so much stuff about fish and boats and everything else in the gospel. It's, it's all about the lake. Right. Uh, maybe four families can get together and own a boat jointly. So there is a kind of an oscillation between the community and the individual in a situation like that. Now they're all going to be isolated. You're back into your plot of land and you can't do anything on the lake that would have required probably... You know, a small peasant is probably not going to be able to own a boat. It's very unlikely, I would think, to have, have keep it, to upkeep a boat that's sure. going to require joint work and communal stuff. So in one sense, by closing that down, you are impoverishing them not only economically and materially, but socially and communally as well. You're isolating them. And if the process goes on, and of course the peasant dream is always to have your own piece of land because at least then you can produce enough food for your family and then, then you can survive, however basic. As then the, the pressure of cities, you now have two big cities, Sepphoris and Tiberius. That's going to change the whole economy. Again, I repeat, because very often scholars get into a big debate, is, is Antipas impoverishing or enriching Galilee? But the point is, you know, ask not for whom the, the boom booms. It may not boom for thee. <laughs> right. Of course, it's probably booming. But I'm not so sure it's booming for the average peasant. I suspect that what's happening is he's getting pushed off the family farm and having to go into the city where his daughters would be maids in aristocratic houses and he may well get a job and you know be doing quite well but then of course he could be fired tomorrow for a, and a slave do the job even cheaper so what is really lost is any sense of security it feels it's, eerily similar it's the process of commercialization and it has its own absolutely infallible logic we, we will have large estates and the people yeah, one person on the large estate who might be the steward will love this system. It's marvelous. But of course, he could be, he could be dumped tomorrow and replaced by a slave. And then he has nowhere to go. So in one sense, it seems to be an improvement, but it's not in the long run for everyone. More of them are going to go into the city. And just to mention only one thing, life in the city is going to be much less healthy than life by the lake, put it bluntly. Right, right. If the city arrives, health goes down, and that is just as true, by the way, of aristocrats. I think the 
an aristocrat in a city like Rome was probably far overall less healthy than a peasant out in Latium somewhere. Right. They won't have the health of doctors, not the rest of it, of course. Without any crack about medicine in the first century, not having a doctor might be to your advantage, unless we're talking about a broken arm or something. You've been incredibly generous with your time, and I want to respect that. I just had a couple like really quick things for you. Okay. Pope Francis, you don't have to give me your impressions if you don't want to, but I'd be interested in what you thought about the first few months of his papacy. Everything looks very, very good, honestly. I mean, the first thing I said is it looks to me, right at the beginning, looks like to me he's a very holy person. We also need somebody, though, who is not just personally holy, but who can make the institution, and I'm talking especially now of the hierarchy at the top, Yes. Um, holy. And that's a trickier thing to do, as we all know. That's, that takes political holiness, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> right. Um, but some of the things he's been saying recently, and some of the criticisms he's been making of the way the Church has been run and emphasized, the, the total isolation, uh, the total focus, I mean, on one thing rather than everything, for example, to put it bluntly, on abortion, as if when the child comes into the world, then fine. Right, then we're okay. Right. Yeah. As long as the child gets in, so, I mean, to put it bluntly, if you're pro-life, shouldn't that last for 90 years or something <laughs> like that, or whatever. Right. Um, I think he's right that Roman Catholicism has a, has a tendency, like Christianity have, let's focus on something, uh, prohibition or gambling or um, gay marriage or as long as it's one thing and we don't do that and they do and now we know who we are right and i think that would make jesus weep you don't have to answer this if you don't want to but are you working on a new book at all i am chuck yeah i've almost finished it actually the the working title is due in the manuscript to harper in by december and i probably have it finished i'm almost finished i've only one final chapter the title is, question, Is God Violent? And the subtitle explains it even more, How to Read the Christian Bible and Still Be a Christian. The basic question is when you go through the entire Bible from beginning to end, I'm talking about Genesis and the Christian Bible, Genesis to Revelation. You get, and you can line it up on two sides of your page, all sorts of things in which God is violent and tells people to be violent and is violent and and other ones in which God is nonviolent talks about distributive justice. The other in which you were talking about retributive justice. Right. And the first question is, well, what do you do with that? They, they run right through the Bible. You certainly can't say because it's a lie that you got a bad cop God in the Old Testament and a good cop God in the New Testament. If you read the book of Revelation, that's as violent as anything anywhere. So the answer I'm working on is that for Christians, the response is, which do you find incarnate in Christ? As a Christian, you're supposed to believe that Christ is the revelation of God. Which do you find? Do you find Christ violent or do you find Christ nonviolent? And then the second question, which is equally important, but wait a minute, you seem to have two, two Christs in there, just like two gods. Right. You have the Christ who... The Sermon on the Mount says you shouldn't even call names, let alone hit people or anything. And then you have the book of Revelation where Christ seems to figure it out, well, the first one didn't work, so I'm coming back on a horse. Right. You know, forget this donkey stuff. 
I'm coming back as a killer. <laughs> My basic thesis in the book is that the norm and criterion for the Christian Bible is the biblical Christ, but the norm for the biblical Christ is the historical Jesus. Not the apocalyptic Jesus and not the second coming Jesus, but the Jesus we know. And my strongest proof that John the Baptist and Jesus were not leading violent gangs, as it were, is that Antipas executed John but didn't round up his followers. And Pilate did the same for Jesus, which means that Pilate, in his judgment, considered Jesus to be a, my language now, nonviolent revolutionary. Revolutionaries require public execution as a warning, but you don't bother your head rounding up their followers. Right. Don't. That's what you do with violent groups. You crucify them all. But nonviolent ones, you pick off the leader, and if they're still at it, you pick off the next leader and the next leader till they get the message. So the historical Jesus was, in my most accurate language, nonviolent revolutionary, and my primary witness is good old pilot. <laughs> when that book comes out, can we chat again? We can certainly, Chuck. Anytime you'd like to. I enjoyed it very much. I would love that. If there's one book that you've written that you would recommend for the person listening today who this is all brand new stuff for them, is that a fair question? Which one would you say pull off the shelf? Let me tell you this. I wrote, as you know, a memoir called A Long Way from Tipperary where I was trying to figure out you know, how, how much had my own experience, how much was it prejudicing or forming or whatever, how I understood Jesus, because so many people tell you you're just making up a Jesus, you know, to suit yourself. So right. I said, well, let me take a look at my life. It was the hardest book to write because, you know, usually my desk is filled with sources and all sorts of stuff. All I had here was my memory and my passport. Yep. Uh, where was I? What was I doing? It was actually probably the book that I think I was most disappointed in sales, I'm not talking commercially, I really am it. But I thought more people would have liked it because it, it was a memoir. Yeah. I think I would almost say to tell people, okay, there's so many of the other ones. Why not try that one? That's very interesting because you know what? That one's sitting on my Kindle and I've not cracked it yet. And so now you have, you have challenged me to read something that I, I'm now looking forward to very much. Oh, so it is on Kindle. I didn't even know that. Oh, yeah. Actually, I, I hadn't heard of the book and came across it and said, I'm going to try this one. So, yeah, it's sitting on my Kindle, and I just haven't got to it yet. So I'll make that a priority now. All right, good. I think it's interesting for people because, you know, a lot of even my colleagues said, well, Crossing is Irish, doesn't like the British Empire, and so he makes, <laughs> Jesus, he makes Jesus not like the Roman Empire. Uh. And, of course, my crack was it. Yeah, I'm Irish, but I don't dislike the British Empire because you can't dislike an empire that gave up all of India and held on to a part of Ireland. I mean, that, sure. that, shows a, that shows a Celtic sense of humor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> who, who, no, who, would give up, who would give up Hong Kong and keep Belfast? Right, all right. Respect. Well, uh, so I prefer to laugh at certain things rather than... But, it is probably true that, you know, my own upbringing may have made me more aware of things in the New Testament. I mean, I couldn't invent the fact that he was put to death, Jesus was put to death, and so was Paul by Roman authority. So right. I couldn't make that up. 
And I wouldn't make that up if it hadn't happened. But it could make me slightly more sensitive to see what was there for somebody else who grew up, you know, perfectly happy with empire. It's the normal way you live your life. We kind of gloss over that or, you know, you only introduce pilots sort of in the creed. <laughs> right, right. Well, John Dominic Croson, thank you so much. A pleasure, Chuck. Anytime. It has been uh, great to chat with you. You take care. Thank you for listening, everyone, and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Okay, thanks anyway. They can't get another plane. All right, what's wrong with the plane we got? They're just checking it out. Oh, oh, no, 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 not getting on there. Come on, let's get something to eat here in Sticksville. All right, hold it right there. What? You're under arrest. Under arrest? What for? Article 223-7 of the Latham County Penal Code. What? No, no, we didn't do anything. That's exactly right. The law requires you to help or assist anyone in danger as long as it's reasonable to do so. I never heard of that. It's new. It's called the Good Samaritan Law. Let's go. The Good Samaritan Law? Are they crazy? Why would we want to help somebody? I know. Th that's what nuns and Red Cross workers are for. The Samaritan, an ancient tribe. Very helpful to people. <laughs>